Mark 14, verse 1, the Bible says, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, unless there be an uproar of the people. Being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at me, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She's come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. As we come to chapter 14, the book of Mark, there are just days now left before Christ will be crucified. And uh, we speaking about his anointing there are three times in the scripture, uh, speaking of three different people. We shouldn't be confused. I've heard a lot of preachers over the years and even commentators that tried to combine these events. What we see in John chapter 12 occurred a few days earlier there in the house of Lazarus and Martha. Mary anoints the feet. Now, this was six days previous to the Passover. So it was a different day of the week, a different house uh, there at Lazarus's house. And then it was a different woman, uh, and she was anointing the feet, not the head. In this case, now we're two days before the feast of the Passover, and uh, this is in the house of Simon the leper, and this unnamed woman's going to come in and anoint his head. So what we don't want to do is try to combine these passages. Uh, God has something different for us in each one. But really my question this morning is this, uh, having studied this on numerous occasions over the years, the question is this, why do so few get it? Why do so few get it? She comes, she brings this alabaster box a box made out of marble, most likely sealed with wax. But uh, she's going to have to break this box. There's no way to really sprinkle a little bit. We know it's of great value. We know for a woman, most likely, this was her dowry. This was her most prized possession. Everyone here understands the value, and it's reiterated in each one of these passages that it was 300 pence. That's a year's wage uh, but more than that, it's something that her family had given her for a very special moment, most likely to be used at her own wedding or at the funeral of someone very precious uh, to this person. But she walks in uh, with this box and she's going to pour it out. Now, here's what we know. In each case, someone speaks up. Judas is really the ringleader. Just days earlier in the house of Lazarus, when this happened, Judas is highlighted. He's the one, he's the voice, he's the vocal one that says, what a waste, why was this waste made? Now, there's a difference in this passage because it wasn't just Judas. You would think, at least I think this way, 
if the, the previous anointing had literally just happened four days ago, and Christ had rebuked Judas for his statement, you would think that the lights would have come on. And in the mind of the disciples, they would have said, he misspoke, and the Bible specifically says, let's, let's go there, uh, John chapter 12. I didn't plan to do this, but we might as well read this, how specific it is in Christ's confrontation of Judas. Verse 4 Then saith one of his disciples, John 12, 4, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said. Now, here's what Christ is going to do. He's going to reveal his heart and motives. Now, here's what you should not do. It is not up for us to judge people's motives because we can't see people's heart. You put yourself in a very bad spot when you do that. But in Christ's case, he knows the heart. And he can reveal the heart. Now look what the revelation is in verse 6. This he said, not because Judas cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Yeah. And, and he makes this out to be, we could have helped so many. No, Judas, you just had less money that you could put your grimy hands on because you're a dishonest man. So in this confrontation, you would think that the disciples would have learned a lesson. But here we are. Fast forward just a few days, and now here comes another woman to anoint the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something contagious happened because now instead of Judas, he of course is rumbling. But in Matthew 26, the parallel text to this passage, it says the disciples. So it wasn't just some of those present in general. I believe basically it was a very... selective group that was sitting down at this meal when she comes in to anoint. They had already seen him anointed on two other occasions, but just days previous he had been anointed and Christ had calmed the contrary opinion and confronted the naysayer. So why did the light not come out? Now they become participants and here's what he says. Let her alone, verse 6, why trouble ye her? She the wrought a good work. Very similar words to the ones that he had used earlier. He said, ye have the poor with you always, whensoever you will, that you may do them good. But me, he said, this is a unique moment. This is just days before his death. She had done what she could. Now look what it says, verse 8. Why did she do this? She has come, what? Now circle the next word. Aforehand. She with... Premonition, she with foresight, she with understanding came and anointed my body to the burying. Now, why was this room in this moment so awkward, not just here, but also in the house of Lazarus, in his previous anointing? Because no one else was considering his death, his burial, and resurrection. Two ladies. Now, you say, Pastor, this would be easy to miss because they were looking for a reigning Savior, not a dying Savior. But go back with me to Mark chapter 8. In these last few weeks and months leading up to his death, he repeatedly, with the disciples... Now, you have to understand, this wasn't just in a general way in his preaching. This is more specifically with his disciples. Look what he says in Mark 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be what? So he's saying, 
I'm going to be put to death and after three days rise again. Uh, now look what it says in chapter 9. Verse 31. For he died is who? Who specifically? Who's there? His disciples specifically. And he said to them, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And they show what? They're going to kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not. Verse Chapter 10, verse 33. Saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered to the chief priests and unto the scribes. They shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him. They shall scourge him. They shall spit on him and shall wit. Or shall what? Kill him. And the third day he shall... Now, let me ask you this. How many say... I can't wrap my mind around that. It's very difficult to understand. Can someone give me more of an interpretation? I need some expository preaching on the subject. Now, this was not in his general preaching. This was specifically to the disciples. He keeps explaining. They're going to come. They're going to arrest me. They're going to falsely accuse me. They're going to try me. I'm going to be put to death. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. So during this time, he keeps repeating this to what audience? His disciples, those in the inner circle. They are not getting it. I don't know how else he can say it. It, it, Does he have to add, you know, kids act things out? How many of you have kids in your house? They want to do a play for mom and dad and one's a king. And it doesn't, even with kids, you know, five-year-old brains, seven-year-old brains, after about five minutes, you can still figure out what they are portraying, right? Why is it that Christ could not get through the minds of the disciples, that this is what's going to happen. And very soon, and I don't want it to be a shock to you, and we have two women who understand. They were not disciples. They were not following Christ around. They were not in the inner circle. They were not hearing. the. They had heard the subject discussed. They had heard Christ occasionally mention the subject, but somehow they had captured it in their hearts and in their minds, and this is why when she comes, she says, he's going to die. I want to take this box of spikenard and use it on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it, it was very, what, what she was doing caught everyone off guard, although it's the second time within a week's span that this happens. Shouldn't the disciple be remembering what the Lord had taught and say, no wonder they're doing this. Because they understand spikenard is used for someone's death. And they understand that Christ is going to die. Why wait until he's already died? Let's get ahead of the curve and go ahead and anoint him and show our love and appreciation while he is yet alive. But the disciples, we're talking days before his death, are, are so blind. Now, Hold on, church. I'm going to be very accusatory this morning. I told someone this week, I feel like I have a ministry to the deaf. Because I'm a blunt person. How many would agree with that? I don't, people say, well, Pastor, what did you mean by that? No, no, you don't have to ask that question. I'm, I'm really straightforward. I don't play games with your minds. I'm not, I'm not out to come through the side window or the back door. You shouldn't struggle with what I'm saying. 
I should probably be a little more filtered. My wife begs me to be a little more filtered occasionally, a little less offensive. But I want to be direct because if I'm direct and people still misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't know how many times, to get my point across, I'll explain something and then I'll say, okay, now tell me what I just said. And they'll tell me what I didn't say. And I, and I think, okay, I'm going to take you right to the doctor and get you a hearing aid because it's not a hearing aid. It's called selective hearing. Now, go back to Mark chapter 8. Let's just look at, at Peter's response for one second to what has taken place into the preaching. Mark eight thirty one. So Christ tells him, he begins to teach him that he must be rejected and killed in three days rise again. And he spake, verse 32, that saying openly, and Peter took him and did what? Now, if Peter rebukes him because of this message, it means there's an absolute rejection of what is being taught. Why would, in one hand, if, if Peter is, if he's saying just previously, thou art the very Christ, the Son of God, and Christ says flesh and blood didn't reveal this, Unto you, this is a heavenly revelation. Why would Peter have a heavenly revelation and seconds later be rebuking the very Son of God? Because we have a filter in our minds that is called our beliefs, our philosophy. This is concerning God, concerning eternity, concerning religion. And when it comes to this Bible, here's what the majority of people do. Hold on for a second. This is the word of God sent from heaven to man so that he can have eternal life. Without this book, there would be sheer confusion among men because you have Catholics and Muslims and Presbyterians and Mormons and Baptists and everyone is debating everything from communion to baptism to uh, salvation. Now, what is the deciding factor? It has to be the Word of God. But here's what man has done. Man has elevated himself as the final authority. Man doesn't like the Bible as the final authority. So when you confront someone with the authority of God's Word, and I've already pre-established what God ought to do to let me into heaven. So I'm going to tell God, the creator of the universe, um, I set the rules, you obey me. When I get to the gates, I'll tell you why, and you just open. I hate to tell you, that's not going to work. God let us know that's not going to work, so he, he actually inspired Scripture, preserved the Scripture, had it translated, got it to us. You have scripture this morning, Aaron, because God's concerned about your soul. God's concerned ultimately about your eternal destiny. And here's what's amazing. It doesn't matter how someone is confronted, family member, church setting, a pastor, a boss, whatever it is, whoever brings the word of God and, and delivers the word. We're talking about the disciples. Now, how many would be in agreement? Let's, let's take a, a little vote this morning. If there were 12 disciples handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ, these were probably the 12 most spiritual men at that time, most learned men of that day. Are two people in agreement with me in that? Okay. I feel like the three of us are right. And then how many would say Christ was the greatest authority of his day or of any day? 
we're talking about people might look to the Pope or a priest or a denominational leader or whatever voice they listen, talk show host or whatever voice they listen to. But Christ is a superior voice to all of those voices. So if he comes and says, this is what's going to happen, death, burial, resurrection, you would think they would listen except believe. But the disciples don't even accept it. Now we see a continual revelation. Now here's what's so sad. How many people will go to hell because the word of God is clear, it's plain, it's simplistic, it's direct, it's straightforward. But man is filtering the word of God through his preconceived philosophies. And it doesn't matter how you come to share the word. Oh, you can come pleasantly, you can come with a smile, you can come with the Bible. You, you can come, I mean, just, I'm going to put on my finest moment of personality because very few of us have very few moments of fine personality. <laughs> but I'm going to come in sweetness and love and kindness and show you, this is what God says concerning heaven, your eternal destiny, hell. I would go God's way because you have an eternal soul and you can't get to heaven, but you've got to go God's way. And they say, no, you're an idiot. I say, actually, this was not my plan. Uh, if, folks, I didn't get bored one day and write 66 books. That wasn't me. That wasn't my idea. No man could come up with this. This is God in love and mercy getting his deliverance to man in an understandable fashion. Because what if Christ would have died 2,000 years ago and he would have never given us a book to tell us and explain all of that to us? It would have only helped a select group during a select time in history. But here's what blows my mind. We're talking about days before his death. He's prophesied and preached and explained and answered questions. And when these two women come to anoint him for his burial, they are not understanding, not accepting, and actually rebuking the ladies and saying, what are you doing? What kind of waste is that? Why would you break your box on crime? I, I don't know. 2,000 years later, I... These are passages I can't read. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you guys? And then I get happy. Benjamin, I get really happy. Because I think I'm not the only one that has a ministry to the deaf. Christ had to use sign language and they still weren't getting it. Two, now this ought to make you ladies happy. You tell you, man, you guys are all hard-headed and you would basically be right. You don't listen to anything and you would basically be correct because Christ cannot get it into their thick skulls. This is why, wouldn't you think that they'd, literally hundreds of people be waiting there three days into his death. They'd be waiting there for him to come out of the tomb. What a meeting they should have had. They should have held a camp meeting for those three days saying, he's coming out of the grave. They were not there because they had not captured his teachings. And here's what we do with scripture. 
So many are not saved, not in the United States of America, not because they have not heard, but because they're filtering the truth through the preconceived minds of this is the way it has to be. And I'll reject God's word if it doesn't fit into the filter of my background, because my dad told me and my religion told me and this person told me. And that doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means God's word is superior and I can't trust any man's word more than God's word. Concerning eternity, no no way, no chance. And it would only be pride for me to say, no matter who comes, that I am smarter than God, and God the author of eternity and the creator of heaven is going to bow to Adam Thompson and let me make the rules. Not happening. Not happening for any man, not happening for any woman, not happening in any dispensation. And they could argue with his teachings, but at the end of the day, guess what happened? He died and three days later he was resurrected and everything he said came to pass. You you know what he said? Go back with me to John 12. I just, it's not part of the message, but it's in the scripture. We might as well read it, right? In the same passage of his Anointing in the house of Lazarus. Look what he says in his teaching. Verse 48. He that rejected me and received not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. So those that reject what God says about salvation, it's not about being... I'm not your judge. I'm not coming to you to judge me. Why would you judge me in the pulpit? Why would you tell me the works don't save me? And my church has told me that's the truth. Why would you tell me the baptism doesn't save me? And my church has told me the baptism has washed away my sins. Because they're contradicting the word of God. And at the end of the day, rejection of his word means you'll be judged at the last day. By his eternal, not by your opinion and not by your friends and not by, it's almost like people truly think during the life is all about uh, deceiving a select group of people that will make up their jury at the final trial. So if I can just con 10 people to believe that I'm a good person, when I die, God will say, okay, we'll put you before a jury. What 10 people do you want on that jury box? These 10, what do you have to say about me? He's a good person. Into heaven ye shall go. That's not the way. That's really a homemade version of crazy imagination. That's all that is. At the end of the day, Christ is giving them very clear instructions about salvation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and they cannot wrap their minds around it. But here's a lady who gets it. And as a result, go back with me to Mark chapter 14, What does she do as a result? She comes, she breaks the box, verse 5. For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence. That's a year's wage. Now, why don't you just calculate what you make during a year? Doesn't matter what it is, 50,000, 150,000, whatever it is. Can you imagine this morning? You bring a box and breaking it out on the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you were to give an envelope or write a check this morning or a year's wage, 
and your mate was to find out about that, they probably would not be happy. You did what? What, what were you thinking? We, we do not have that kind of money to spend on that kind of thing. What about our bills? What about our mortgage? What about our electric? What about our car? What, what about Christmas? Right? And, and they're looking at this. But, but here's what happens. When someone truly gets what God is saying, just understanding the Bible puts you in a strange category. What the world will label an extremist. You go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night? For an hour? Oh, you go to the bar for five hours? You spend $120, you lose your mind, you throw up on yourself. You have to call an Uber or put someone else's life at risk to make it back home. And that's sanity. But if I walk into a church, I'm insane. You'll put 16 pieces of metal in your nose, your lip, and your eyebrow. You make your ear look like a Christmas tree. You'll paint your hair so many colors that at some point you'll forget the original color that God gave you. But if I keep my face out of the tackle box, my hair, what I have left, the color God made it and the church made it, and my kids made it. Gray. Then I'm insane. Here, here's what happens. Anybody that truly gets scripture, you know what happens? God begins to transform you in whatever you do for the honor and glory of God for a lost and dying world looks really extreme. Any kind of giving, any kind of living, any kind of dedication. And we're talking about the disciples. She comes in. She breaks this box. We know the value. We know the cost. And here's what happens. It's not extreme to this world if a man works 60 hours a week. And if he has two jobs. And if he has two bank accounts. And if he has two retirement funds. And if he has. That's not strange. That kind of expense. That kind of investment. That If you're spending money on, on two trucks. One that costs seventy thousand, one that costs sixty thousand. The world slaps you on the back and says you're successful because you take up two parking spots with one vehicle. Your truck rumbles; it doesn't run. You're successful, but if you do it with a little less, to offer a little more, you're insane. What a waste! Isn't it crazy how twisted our philosophy is to think that anything spent on the Lord Jesus... Now, now here's, what, here's what Christ did. Right here, we see it in this chapter. Judas looks at what was spent on the Lord Jesus Christ and says, what a waste. Okay, in a matter of days, God in love and mercy, we know the verse, for God so loved the world that he... Now, that's extravagant. He gave his son... Some of you get frustrated this Christmas because you'll spend a little bit of money and someone won't show the gratitude that you hope they would show. And you in your mind are thinking, I was way too extravagant. I spent $250 and they weren't even appreciative. $250, 
God sent his son. That's extravagant. And Judas is going to say, you broke a box on his head. Now that's a waste. Young people, here's what you're going to have to learn. Sometimes even in your own homes, your friends, sometimes with your own parents, if you decide to live for Jesus, someone's going to say, what a waste. What a waste of talent. What a waste of time. You're going to go to Bible college? What a wasted career. What a waste of four years. You're going to do something for Jesus on Saturday? What a waste. You could be out at the lake catching fish that have been contaminated in the waters of our... Come on, folks. You're eating fish out of town lake. You have lost your ever loving mind. Uh-huh. But that's not a waste. You bring those home, you're all happy to flay those from mercury to city sewage all wrapped up in a single fish. But you had a great Saturday. But if you come to God's house on a Saturday to do something for the sake of the gospel, you wasted your weekend. Amen. Any, anything that's done. And here's what, I, here's what I can't wrap my mind around. Pastor Robert, 30 years of reading this passage and studying this passage, understanding the previous rebuke of Judas you would think if they would have thought this, it would have been silenced. But why are you thinking this? You, because you have literally blocked out of your mind everything that's been taught over the past six months concerning his death, burial, and resurrection. But why would even, did not they use the same words of Judas? What, what did they say? Verse 4, why was this what? Waste. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I think the opposite. Here's why I would be arguing with them. Because if these boxes of spikenard were normally used, two reasons, weddings and funerals. If a woman used it at a wedding, that means she's using it on herself. If she used it at a funeral, she's using it for the dead. Now, you know what the majority of us use our box for? Our box, speaking of the most precious thing that we have, our time, our talents, our life, our ability our mind, our energy, our youth, whatever that is. You know the two ways we use it? Ourselves or something that's dead. Now me, I'm, I work at Apple. I work at Facebook. Have you looked at their stock over the past 12 months? I work at Twitter. Have you looked at their stock over the past 12 months? We're so happy about breaking our box on something that is dead. But if it's broken for Christ, I'm going to tell you guys something. You go break your box on yourself or this world, you wasted it. But why would the disciples be unified in their voice looking at this? Now, can you imagine the awkwardness? And young people, here's what's going to happen. Okay, she comes in. And in all three of the cases in Scripture where we see someone anointing the Lord Jesus Christ, I feel for the poor woman. Because basically this is a room full of men. They're in a mill. And here she comes. Great love. Great understanding. Superior inner Christianity to everyone at the table except the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But this is going to be a scene. No matter how you do this discreetly. How do you break a box of spike nard on someone discreetly? Is it possible? Okay. Anybody ever been anywhere where you did something you know you had to do, but you knew you were going to look like an idiot doing it? This was an incredible thing. Now, here's what happens. Living for Jesus, doing the right thing, basically means at times you're going to look like a bona fide idiot. Full-blown ignoramus. Is she going to come in with this box? I know she's trying to be discreet as possible, but how do you be discreet in a room full of men? And he's eating. Who wants oil poured on him during a meal? Now, I have a very strong sense of smell. I have people laugh at me. There's spray cans all over this building. There are plugins into the water. I mean, everywhere you go, Pastor, I don't want a funky monkey living in this building that I have to smell for the rest of my life. Amen? Amen. I can't imagine trying to finish. I, I can't eat a meal trying to smell conflicting odors like that. And this is going to permeate the room. Some of them, you just ruined my meal. Now look what it says, verse 9. This is extreme in every sense, but extreme in its impact. Verily I said to you, whithersoever this gospel should be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she had done should be spoken of for a memorial of her. Now here's what's incredible. All of you have a personal story. All of you have a personal moment. And it might have been shared, misconstrued, exaggerated. How many of you kids that listen to your parents tell a story and you thought, I wonder how much of that has been exaggerated. <laughs> Don't raise your hand because your parents are here. They're watching live stream. But Christ wrote this in eternal scripture so it couldn't be exaggerated or misconstrued. And here's what happened. For the last 2,000 years, this story has been told in Liberia and Nepal. Japan, China has a billion people, communist at heart. But you know how many millions in China have heard about this woman that anointed the Lord Jesus Christ? It's been preached from Argentina to Canada, all across Europe. I'm talking about countries that are forgotten, like Mongolia. Eritrea, where it's illegal to have a Bible, people have gotten this, and preachers have preached on this. That's eye impact. So we think that this ointment just filled the room. No, this has been smelt for 2,000 years by millions, yea, billions of people. That kind of impact. Because it's extraordinary. Young people, we've, we've mentioned names like William Borden. I remember it was a kid being given the biography, Borden of Yale. And here he is, the son of a millionaire. And I laughed because most people thought Borden of Yale, it had to do with milk. And the condensed milk fortune of Borden had nothing to do with that. His dad was actually made his money in the silver mines of Colorado, where I grew up. That's where his dad made filthy, filthy money. But under the ministry of R.A. Torrey, he got saved, called to preach, or not really called to preach, surrendered uh, to, to missions. And when he was 16, his dad, with all that money, said, I'm going to give you a graduation gift. And uh, he sent him on a trip, escorted trip, uh, around the world. How many of you kids would like that for your graduation? Said, dad, I'd be okay with that. If you're a senior this year, Cody, are you a senior? 
give your dad an additional year to prepare for it. Just go ahead and tell dad. You know, dad, I, I know you're thinking about a watch or a Bible. How about, you know, just one of those six months, you know, three months. Can you do the whole world trip? We, we have planes now. He didn't have planes. But he traveled around the world. Uh, on his trip, he was in China. God moved in his heart. So he comes home. Can you imagine your dad? He's, he's thinking, you're going to take over the family business. And he comes back and says, Dad, I'm going to go to China as a missionary. And Dad's like, you're out of your mind. I've already set it up for you to go to Yale. So he went to Yale. And he began holding prayer meetings. And basically, the majority of Yale at the time got saved through those prayer meetings. He opened up a rescue mission. Now, here's a kid. Okay, he, he graduated at 16, so he's real young. I don't know, he's probably 18 at the time. He opens up his rescue mission. He, he's a millionaire, the son of a millionaire with a rescue mission. He's in these high-dollar suits, hugging these drunks and leading them to Jesus. And his dad said, no, you're not done with your education. Okay, so he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and was determined still to go to China. And we all know the, the famous notes that he wrote in his Bible uh, when, when he got called to preach and he, he thought about going. He said, no reserve. I'm going to do it for the sake of the gospel. And uh, when he came back and said, Dad, I'm going to China, his dad said, okay, I'm going I'm to keep you out of the family business and I'm going to keep you from that kind of inheritance money. And what words did he write next? No retreat. I'm, I'm not going back. I'm, I'm not giving up. Uh, he's, he goes to Cairo, Egypt to study because he wanted to go to the Uyghur uh, Muslims there in western China. So he goes to Cairo first to study the language. And what happens? Cerebral meningitis. Very disfiguring disease back in the day. They had nothing to even slow it down. And he's... Very disfigured right away. He knows he's dying. His mom travels over. And at the age of 25, what were the last words that he wrote? No regrets. Why did a 25-year-old that never even made it to the mission field make such a great impact that still felt today? Because somehow where others haven't, he walked away from a fortune and people said, what a waste, what what a waste, you could take all that money, you, you're already successful, you're just the family you were born into, you're successful already, why would you be so stupid as to walk away, why would you go to Western China, no one cares about Western China, but he got it. Now here's my question this morning, because we're, we're sitting in a church where a lot of Bibles preach, and a lot of big name preachers come through, and books and conferences and all the rest, but I'll be honest with you. Most Christians, even under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't get it. The teachings of the Bible, even the most simplistic ones, because we have so many preconceived notions and opinions, God's word has to be filtered through our opinion, and it's rejected if it doesn't match my philosophy. In any Bible principle, that comes into conflict with my way of thinking must be rejected. That's what we see at this table. Days before his death, his own disciples. Look, look what it says in verse 5. They what against her? They murmur against the only one in the room that actually understands what Christ had taught. 
They murmured. There's a group there that's not going to get it. And young people, if, if you ever get it, there, there are a few. There are a few. We have a few in our high school that get it. And you know what happens? They're murmured against. I thank God for a son that's in Ecuador. I'm going to talk to him this morning. Actually, I didn't talk to him. Talk to my grandson. Talk to, tried to talk to Lincoln. He wasn't that interested in talking to Papa this morning. I think what he does when he talks to Papa, he puts on his assistant pastor face because he knows as soon as I can ordain him, which may be at five or six, I don't know. As soon as he gets saved, Brother G, I'm going to ordain him. Make him a staff member. But I think he goes in a serious mode just so he knows I can have confidence in him at this young age, tender age of four months. But I, I thank God. I thank God for those in, not because they're missionary or pastor or assistant pastor or teacher, whatever. I thank God for those that truly get it. And life is about, I just want to, I just want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. I just, I just want to live in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want to argue with God, and I don't want to argue with his word. And here's, here's what happened. There, there was a group in all three of these cases that are just sitting and watching. Go to Mark 16 for just a minute. Here's what happens. That's nice. She anointed him. Well, you know what? If he does die, we're going to take our boxes of spikenard, we're going to take our perfumes, and we'll anoint him too. Chapter 16, verse 1, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. Now, wouldn't you think that Mary the mother of James, of all people, I mean, if you have sons that are disciples and you've been that close to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd think that she'd be ahead of the curve on these teachings as well. But they brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Here they come with their boxes. Here comes the parade. Shouldn't they be applauded? And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. We're here early. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone? Now look what it says in verse 6. He saith unto them, the angel, be not afraid. He seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He's not here You're too late. I remember in Argentina, uh, years ago, we didn't have a vehicle, but they had the big uh, Argentine um, state fair and a big event. And Kim and I and Bill Lynn, we planned to go. But we, you know, you have little Kimberly and Chris were babies. And it's a headache to travel around. Uh, It was an hour away. We don't have a vehicle, so we have to find a, a rental vehicle that we can get over there with. But anyways... We, we make preparation on Friday night. We're all excited. Saturday night. We're all excited. We get the kids, get everything loaded up. Drive an hour. We get over there. And we drove over that. It's really quiet. It looks really closed. And the guy at the gate said, uh, can I help you? Yeah, we just came to the fair. Uh, it ended yesterday. I was glad we spent hundreds of dollars. And what a great idea. Would have been a great idea yesterday. And you know what happens to most people? Uh, you know when they're going to serve God, they're going to do right and get involved and take it, it tomorrow. And when they finally get up the courage to bring the box, 
I don't know how many people I've talked to. 65. Well, I wish. Uh, you could have broken your box at 35 or 40. And then you broke it for the company. You broke it for your retirement. And that company didn't come through with their promises. And then the economy destroyed your investment. And the doctor bills are eating away at your bank account. At the end of the day, my box is empty, and I never even broke it on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what's incredible. Church, when you consider what took place in John 12, Mark, go back to Mark 13 and we'll, Mark 14 and we'll finish. Some of the most important words in all of this chapter, verse 6, and Jesus said, as they murmured against her, what? Let her alone. Let her alone. You know, one of my greatest conflicts, pastoring, when you occasionally have someone that truly gets it, and here's what happens. When they get Scripture and, and they begin to understand, they begin to live for God, and they begin to love God, even the faithful consider them extremists. And then the pastor's in the strange position of telling people, let that person alone. Just let them alone. They want to live for God. They want to use everything they have for God and His will and the gospel's sake. And Pastor, they look a little crazy. They are a little crazy. Anybody that takes that box and breaks it on the Lord Jesus Christ is crazy. They're nuts. That's why there's only three of them. They're nuts. They, they could, if nothing else, they could just go sell it. They could use it for something else. They wouldn't have to look so awkward. They wouldn't ruin an incredible setting. They wouldn't be murmured against. They wouldn't be spoken against. And here's what most Christianity is. Minimal effort fitting in, arguing with Scripture, arguing with God, living on a lower plane, doing as little as possible for the kingdom of God and for eternity. And when occasionally you find someone that's different, everyone in the church is bothered by it. Pastor, don't you think you should do something with that young man? Yeah, pour more gas on the fire. Don't you think that... Don't you think that person is too sold out? Don't you think they're giving too much? Don't you think they're too fanatical? Don't you think? You know what Christ said? And I'm going to take his example. Christ said, leave her alone. So here's my question for you this morning. Number one, why are you arguing with God about his death, burial, and resurrection? Because you argue with God about his death, burial, and resurrection, you're going to find yourself in hell. Not because you weren't told, not because you weren't warned, but because you put your philosophy and your opinion above God's word. No one around you wanted to condemn you. No one around you wanted to hurt you. They, they wanted to get you into heaven God's way, which is the only way. That's not debatable. And then, Christian, the next question is for you. Wouldn't you love it if someone in your house got it? Then why would you argue with God? Don't, don't you want to come to the church and say, God, I, I, I want to be more sensitive. Forgive me for filtering everything in your word through the filter of my opinion and preconceived ideas. 
Help me just to submit to what your Holy Spirit has to say for me, 